Good morning. On a rainy day like today, to walk into the lobby and to see the artwork, that was great, wasn't it? I mean, that is so cool. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Each one of those pictures represents a child who's a part of the ministry here, a family that's a part of this ministry being impacted by our MOPS group and by our um, preschool. Um, that's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. We are blessed that that uh, is going on here at Hope. And, you know, just picture those pictures, each one being a little body. That's a lot. It's good stuff. Speaking of that, it reminds me that next Sunday is Mother's Day. I'm just saying that out loud so I don't forget. <laughs> Actually, we're going to be doing some special things here on next Sunday um, for... Uh, women in general, moms in particular, and so I want to encourage you to find a mom to bring with you next Sunday. Bring your own mom, bring mom of your kids, bring a mom you meet at the grocery Just find yourself a mom, bring her along, she'll be blessed. All right, so I want to uh, ask you to repeat a couple of phrases after me, all right? So... Look in. All right, let's try that again. I want you to repeat the words I'm going to say. Look in. Look up. Look out. Look in. Look up. Look out. All right, so that's the outline of the message this morning. So you are now fully briefed on where I'm going to be going in the message. We are talking in this series about conflict. And little play on words, we're talking about a conflict revolution versus conflict resolution. We're looking at conflict as something more than just something to get through. We're looking at it from a perspective that it can be something much more profound than just surviving and getting through it. Now, I know when it comes to conflict, you are somewhere on a scale, Scale of, let's say, 1 to 10. 1 being, you thrive on conflict. You like conflict. You create conflict. All right? That's a 1. A 10 is, you hate conflict. You would rather run a marathon in your bare feet on ice than have to go through conflict, right? So somewhere you fall on that spectrum. Now, when uh, in my younger adult years, I was probably seven or eight on the, on the scale. I didn't like conflict. It made me really uncomfortable. I thought it was a bad, dangerous, terrible thing. And so I was a big-time conflict avoider. Now I put myself at a three or a four. Okay. What happened in the years in between, going from seven to eight to three to four, is a couple of things. One, I began to realize that avoiding conflict usually made things worse. Avoiding conflict usually made things worse. And so I didn't like that feeling, the pain and so forth of it being worse. So that began to move me. The other thing I came to understand is that conflict is an opportunity to make things better. 
Conflict is an opportunity to make things better. In fact, I have this little adage that um, I developed that, that I share around here often. It goes like this. Growth requires change. If you're going to grow, you have to change. Right? No matter what that is, growth requires change. Change creates conflict. Anytime there's a change, it's going to create some level of upset, some level of conflict. Conflict is an opportunity to make things better. When I began to realize that conflict, rightly handled, is an opportunity to make things better, it began to move me on the scale. Now, I say it's an opportunity to make things better. That's not to say it's a guarantee that things will get better. And so the revolution part is, how do I come into conflict? How do I deal with conflict so that the opportunity is there to make things better? And this applies whether it's in your home, in your workplace, with your friendships, in, uh, in the community, in social media, in the church. What you do, how you respond in times of conflict determine whether or, or how things go and whether or not things get made better. So for the series, this three-week series, we're looking to James, the book of James, for some insights around conflict. And last week, I thought Pastor Steve did a masterful job in talking about chapter one in James, the use of our words, our words, the words that we speak. We can speak words that are life-giving, affirming, helpful kinds of words, or we can speak words that are destructive and hurtful and do damage. And what Steve reminded us in that was the teaching of Jesus, who said, out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, what's, what's in our heart, and by heart, it's our inner life, our soul. What's going on inside of me is ultimately what comes out of my mouth. So it's a little window. Our words are a window into the heart. Now, I recognize that for many of us, we're pretty good, or we can get good, at filtering our words when things are going well. So as long as we're doing fine and things are going smoothly and so forth, I can, I can usually do pretty good at filtering my words. But when conflict happens, when things get sideways, when things get energized, when things aren't going the way that I want, those filters begin to come down, and now you get to see some of the mess in my life because it's coming out in my words. Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. So in James chapter 2, James is now addressing another issue going on in the church. The issue is, in a word, discrimination. There's discrimination going on in the life of the church. In this particular case, the discrimination is based on economic issues. Rich people, affluent people, people of means, the beautiful people, are being treated one way, 
and people who have less means, less money, less affluence are being treated another way. In fact, it's like over the top as James describes it. They're flaunting over uh, these wealthy people. They're, they're wanting to make sure they're comfortable and they get the best seats and, and everybody is just ooing and eyeing when they walk in, you know, and you just in their purple togas and their newly minted leather sandals and their, and their you know, came up on their hot new chariot. I don't know if they came up in chariots to church, but... That's the picture, you know, like, dude, did you check out Bill's new chariot? Sweet ride, man. So it's that kind of thing. But for the poor, they're being treated as if they're, you know, a problem. We don't really want them here. But if you have to be here, just don't say anything and sit in the back, maybe on the floor. It's bad, right? It's bad. So here's what James says. In chapter 2, verse 9, words on the screen, it says this, but you favor some people over others. If you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. When we show favoritism, He's saying, you are sinning. This isn't just a little problem. This isn't just, you know, a, a, you know, bad kind of behavior. But, you know, this is a sin showing this kind of favoritism. And in this case, he doesn't, he's not specific anymore. So he was addressing this specific issue in the first uh, uh Eight verses. When he gets to verse 9, he broadens it out. If you show favoritism, you're committing a sin. And you're breaking the law. What law? What law are you breaking by showing favoritism? Well, he answered that in verse 8. In verse 8, he says it's the royal law and then defines it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, it's the new covenant. The old covenant laws given to Israel through Abraham, Moses, Jacob, the old covenant laws, 613 of them, are no longer part of the new covenant. There's this new covenant. And the new law that Jesus gave, the new commandment, as he described it, that Jesus gave was to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When you show favoritism, you are breaking the royal law of the covenant that came through Jesus. It gets even more direct in verses 12 and 13. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. Isn't that interesting? The law that sets you free. What law sets us free? Love your neighbor. Love God. Love your neighbor. It's free from all of those other regulations, all of the other laws, all of the burdens that came with that. 
It is now the law of grace, unmerited favor, unearned gift. It's the law of grace motivated by love. That's the law that sets you free. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. It's serious stuff. James is saying that the words that we speak, whatever you say, the actions that we do, whatever you do, are going to come under judgment. And when we disobey the royal law, right? when we're acting without mercy towards others, we will be judged in the same way. What James is trying to do here is make things better. He wants the church to be better. He wants growth, not just numerical growth. He wants Christ followers to grow in the ways that they act and react toward other people. He wants growth. So some things are going to have to change. One of the things as he's looking at the church that has to change is this cancer of favoritism, favoring some in the church over others. That's not good. And so he creates this conflict by saying, this isn't right. We have to change this. You can imagine, right? If James were saying this stuff to us, can you imagine after the service, the conversations? Who does he think he's talking to? I don't know. We don't do that. Do you do that? Do you, whoever saw that? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, is he talking about that guy? You know, the guy who's kind of dirty and a little smelly? Of course we want him sitting in the back, right? Don't, right? It created some conflict, some stirring. Are you guys awake? All right, I just want to check because it's dark out there and I know it's raining and first service, man, people were literally snoring. They were just, <laughs> that's not true. Just checking in. So it, it, he created this conflict, okay? He's trying to wake people up. He's trying to stir it up because he wants the church to get better. Did it work? Here's what we know. So this was one of the earliest letters of the New Testament. So it was written at a time of the first generation of Christian people. There were people in the church who knew Jesus. The apostles were still around, or at least some of them, right? So it's very early on. So did it get better? Yeah, I think so, because for the next three centuries, the church spread like wildfire. 
And the reason it spread so widely and was so effective and went from being an outlawed sect or, or cult to being the accepted religion of Rome is because Christian people embraced everybody. They cared for, especially cared for, people who society rejected. They cared for widows. They cared for orphans. They cared for the poor. They cared for the sick. They became known as people who cared for people that others walked away from. And as people saw that lived out, they were attracted to it. And the message of Christ spread all throughout the world. And the number of people following Jesus grew by the thousands and tens of thousands and churches spread throughout the world. So yeah, I think they got the message. But in order for that to have happened, notice I use the word church like it's a thing. What, what is the thing? What is the church? Yeah, it's you. You are the church. It's like the little Sunday school song, right? I am the church. You are the church. We are the church together. No? I didn't make that up. Like, I, that is a song. It's a real song. I don't get to sing with the choir, so I get, you know, periodically I just give myself permission to sing. <laughs> right. You're the church. Ultimately, individual believers had to make a choice. Am I going to be a person that shows favoritism motivated by my own stuff or am I going to follow Jesus and live my life differently? And a whole lot of Christians, a whole lot of Christ followers made the decision to follow Jesus in that. Out of the overflow of your heart, you speak and you do. Out of the overflow of our heart, we speak and we do. And I was thinking about a friend I had years ago, Christian guy, you know, he went to church every Sunday. He was active in an adult Sunday school class. Uh, he, his language, you know, was quoted the Bible a lot, and, you know, so he was clearly a guy of faith. But I began to notice things about him as I hung out with him. One of the things I noticed was he would put his wife down in public, and he would just say kind of, you know, snarky things about, about his wife, always with a smile and a chuckle. And he could tell if he had crossed a line by the people's reaction, and he would go, <laughs> she knows I'm just kidding. Um, he was very kind of a judgmental guy, judging people in the church, judging people outside of the church. Um, he didn't, he told me he, the reason he didn't come to this church was he needed a little more fire and brimstone from the preacher. He needed somebody who was going to call people out for their sin a little more. 
you know. Your church is nice, Jeff, but you're just, you're kind of soft. After his affair and his wife divorced him, he went around disparaging his wife for her lack of faith because you're not supposed to get divorced. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We do stuff. It's a window into our heart. So, what's going on in my heart? And especially in times of conflict, it stirs stuff up in us. All right, none of that has to do with the outline, all right? So, um, all right, I am, we're good. We're right on time. Look in. Look in. When it comes to conflict, before you can engage in conflict to make things better, you need to look in. I need to look in. What's going on in my heart? What's going on in my inner life when it comes to this conflict? What's going on in me? So as I'm getting energized around a conflict and I'm feeling angry, what's, what's fueling that? So it could be things like fear or resentment, some old wound, a competitiveness, just want to win, insecurities, mistrust. What is stirring in me within this conflict? And the body gives us a clue, right? It lets us know when, when something's stirring in us around a conflict. For me, I start to, my teeth start to clench. My jaw locks. My muscles begin to tighten up. My words become a little sharper. And apparently I have a tone. I hear tell of a tone. I'm not a yeller, but I have a tone. I'm married to a musician. She recognizes tones. <laughs> if only I could discover what the tone is, I could so control that. Right? So that's, that's a clue for me. When I start, my teeth are clenched and I'm... I'm tightened and I can tell my words. I have a bit, something's going on. I need to look in. What's this stirring up in me that I need to deal with before I can bring anything into the conversation? Remember what Jesus said? Before you go trying to get the speck out of somebody else's eye, take the plank out of your own eye. You need to look in the mirror. You need to look inside. Before you fix somebody else, look inside. So, tied to that, connected to that process of looking inside. What's going on in me? What's the stirring up in me? Why am I feeling these feelings? What's going on here? I need to also look up. Now, 
I, I'm just using that as a way to talk about connecting to God. It's not the God's up in heaven, way up there, and that kind of thing. It's just a, just a hook to help think about, I need to look to him. I need to look to the Holy Spirit in this conflict. I need wisdom beyond myself. I need guidance beyond my own information if I'm going to really try to be part of making things better. And so there's things that I do. There's spiritual disciplines that we bring into play. So I'm in this conflict. I'm trying to figure out, all right, what's, what am I feeling? And Lord, I need your help. So there's a couple of scriptures that give guidance for the ways that we can pray. The first one is Psalm 51, verse 10. It says, create in me a clean, a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit in me. Clean me up. Lord, the mess that, that's in there, all of the stuff that's churning around, Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew a loyal spirit within me. Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says this, Search me, O God. Know my, what? Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Because ultimately, it's about life. God wants us to have an abundant life and lasting life from this time through eternity. Search me, O oh God. Know my heart. Help me to see and to understand what's going on in me. So those are some prayers to pray, right? We also seek wise counsel, people of faith that you know, that you trust, that you can process this with, who aren't afraid to tell you the truth or what they see or what they hear, not necessarily what you want them to say, right? To have that level of friendship with another uh, person of, of faith is important. We need to ask the right question. When you're praying and asking God for guidance in the conflict, you need to ask the right question. Here's the right question. Lord, what would it look like for me to demonstrate love in this situation? That's the right question. What would it look like for me to demonstrate love in this situation? I need your guidance, Lord. I need your direction. Okay? So that's the looking up part. So I'm looking in. I'm looking up. I'm working through my own stuff. Now I'm ready to look out. Now I'm ready to look at how can I be engaged in this situation to make things better. I'm asking the right questions, right? And I'm praying. I'm dealing with my own stuff. My mindset is off of me, judging, condemning, 
competing with, beating. And my mindset is on this other person and how we can work things out together. Heard a story a few years ago about, it was a guy who um, I knew he was um, a consultant with, with companies, the companies that were, in, um, that were struggling. He would come in and, uh, and help do some problem solving. And there was a meatpacking company in um, one of the states up north, I think Illinois or somewhere. And uh, this company was a national company, um, and uh, they were just struggling. They, there was a huge conflict between the actual meat packers and the management uh, team, and they were just stuck. They couldn't get any progress. They brought this guy in. He's sitting with these guys, and there's just hostility and anger and resentment, and they're not getting anywhere. And uh, finally, somebody on the management team says, you know, I just I asked one simple thing of these guys, if they would just come in on a weekend a couple of months ago to just help us get some stuff out, and they refused to come in. And the guy who was the head of the, of the meat packers said, I couldn't come in. Why couldn't you come in? I was at my son's funeral. Everything stopped. And the guy on the management team said, I, I didn't even know you had a son. In that moment, he said, everything changed. It went from being a struggle between the workers and the management team to being a conversation between two dads. as they work through that conversation, you know. He said fixing the problem after that was easy. It was a lack of looking at the person. As a person, it was a problem, it was an issue, it was a process, it was, they lost sight of the people involved. Now, I'm not saying that every conflict is going to end in agreement. It doesn't go that way all the time. But things can still get better. Because when we go through conflict well, when you go through conflict well, when you go through conflict in a God-honoring way, you get better. Your faith gets more mature. The way that you handle conflict gets more mature. You get better at it. And even though and in a particular conflict it may not end with agreement, you walk away with a sense of integrity. I did that well. And it leaves the door open for something down the road in that situation to perhaps open up. Unlike burning bridges and closing doors and casting dispersions and all of that. It's an opportunity to make things better. The last issue that the church faced when it came to favoritism and how we treat people wasn't the rich and the poor in the first century. The church has 
faced this question over and over and over again throughout its history. And we've done better and worse at various times about how we've done that. The Apostle Paul said, there should be no favoritism. He said, there, there is no male or female in the church anymore. There is no slave or free. There is no Greek and Jew. We are all one in Christ. That's the perspective that he brought. And we haven't always modeled that. One of the things that's going on in this church, meaning the United Methodist Church, as in many churches around the country, is the same kind of question. How do we handle the issue of human sexuality? How are we going to move through this? With all of the different perspectives, with all of the, uh, the ways people come to that and think about that and understand scripture on that and all of that, how do we move through this in ways to make things better? It's a challenge, but it's not the first time that the church has ever faced this. So the bishop of the New Jersey conference um, has invited me to be part of a, a committee that is looking at that for the state of New Jersey. What is it going to look like for our churches here in New Jersey? Not just waiting for the... <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, it's a good thing. It is a good thing. It is a good thing. It's a good thing because we need to figure this out. How do, we, how do we move through this in ways that show integrity of our faith? Regardless of your position on this issue, how do you move through this with integrity? And then how do we do that together with a level of integrity where we honor people, we love people, the royal law, before we get into, you know, the issues that separate. So it's going to be a, a challenge, but I'm actually, for the first time, I think I'm kind of excited about it because I think it's an opportunity for us in the church to make it better so that we can be, like the first century church, a place that brings transformation. The country is... Our country is so divided right now. There's so much hostility. The church should be better than that. The church is better than that. But you're the church. And I'm the church. And we are the church together, right? <laughs> so I'll keep you posted as that's going on. Um, you know, but this, this whole area of conflict, um, it really is an opportunity. It's not a guarantee that things will get better. It's an opportunity. But you've got to look in, and you've got to look up, and you've got to look out. Let's stand for closing prayer. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, thank you for your church. Thank you for... <clears throat> allowing us the privilege of bearing your name. Thank you for the call that you place on us 
to be light and salt to the world. But Lord, you know what's in our hearts. You know the mess, you know the struggles that we have, you know the hurts and the injuries and the, you know it all, God. So create in me a clean heart. Create in us a clean heart and a loyal spirit so that we might represent you well. I pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a great week.